Side Hustle Show 148, Seven Houses at 27, Building a Real Estate Empire on the Side. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show, where aspiring part-time entrepreneurs learn how to turn their side hustle dreams into reality. Because your nine to five may make you a living, but your five to nine makes you alive. And now your host, Nick Loper. What's happening? Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show where it's all about ideas, action, and results. This is episode 148 of our Humble program. It's all about cash flow, real estate, investing on the side. I met today's guest briefly, uh, very briefly back uh, at FinCon in September, uh, but it was long enough to figure out she was up to something big. I'm excited to introduce Elizabeth Colgrove to the program. She blogs at reluctantlandlord.net, but I think you'll get the sense from this conversation that her investment strategies are anything but reluctant. They're very much intentional. So stick around to hear the three pillars of real estate investing, Elizabeth's uh, house buying criteria, how she reduces her liability on those properties, and ultimately how she plans to retire at the ripe old age of 42 on the back of her growing cash flow empire. Notes and links and a free downloadable PDF with all of Elizabeth's top tips from this episode are at sidehustlenation.com slash houses. Let's do this. So my husband and I got married at 22 right out of college. My husband was an ensign in the Navy and we were down in Texas. And I quickly realized that with my background in finance accounting, it was going to be hard to do the traditional like job, even though I wanted nothing to do with entrepreneurship. I did want a flexible job. Um, I wanted to be able to, you know, have family time when he was around and then be able to work on whatever pursuits I wanted to. Um, so while it took me a couple of years to build that, I, I realized that real estate was kind of my thing and that we are transient. So we move a lot. Um, we've moved four times in five years and we're getting ready to move again this spring. Such is the Navy life, yes? Navy life. And, uh, you know, there's good, worse and better stories depending on who you ask. So we're, we're kind of the average. Okay. So the goal was to create something. And so we just kind of, you know, kept these houses, you know, something that you always have to do, live in a place. And over time, and mind you, we've bought a lot of pure investments, i.e. we never lived in them, bought them as a rental. But um, over time, we kind of developed what we wanted. And we've just slowly grown and we're about to buy our eighth house next month. That is that is nuts. It's like a you're like moguls, like such young uh, young moguls building this empire. What I've been taught as the three pillars of real estate investing uh, are cash flow, appreciation, and tax benefits. And I was reading your October monthly report. Between if everything goes well, you're looking at eighteen hundred dollars roughly in positive cash flow for uh, for for this portfolio, plus the um, Principal pay down. What was that? Another fourteen, fifteen hundred. Sixteen thirty-three. I have it open too. Okay. So if there's no market value appreciation, at least I'm getting free equity in the form of like these people are paying down my mortgage. So that's I'll call that appreciation. I'll call that equity building uh, on top of the cash flow. And then on the tax benefit side, help me understand because like if I'm a homeowner, I can write off my mortgage interest. Can you do the same thing as an investor with seven houses? Yep. And that's what's awesome. Because actually, as a homeowner, you can only write it off if it exceeds your um, standard deduction. Whereas an investor, you can write it off no matter what from your profit. Okay. 
it's considered a, a business expense. Right. Well, we're, I'm not a tax professional, so I don't, I don't want to um, make anything um, incorrect. So that's that's awesome. So those are the three things that that you're after. Um, Eighteen hundred dollars a month. Is there a is there a target that you're shooting for in terms of like I'm, I want to you know build up this uh, cash flow, build up this equity, and you know shoot for early early retirement? Or so where where's this going? So my my goal is my husband and I can early retire when he retires from the Navy. Um, so that would be 42 and 44. So 14 years, not that we're counting or anything. Yeah. And the goal is to have $100,000 without including like any pension or benefits or anything like that. Just $100,000 from our houses. Okay. Pay down, cash flow producing, whatever. So right now, our goal is to have the tenants pay everything off. So the sweat equity would be self-managing the homes. So the goal is that as much as we can, we buy the houses with as little as down as possible so the tenants are paying it off. So that's why I like to include the principal pay down because our cash flow isn't as high as some people shows, but our principal pay down, which is what like is being paid down because our houses are highly leveraged, also counts. So in that case, we're really making about $3,300 for mental math. Yes. Okay. Let's, let's get into some of this stuff because that is obviously one of the first questions that comes up. Hey, I would love to have this kind of, you know, monthly cash flow, but the equity or the, the down payment required to buy seven different houses, especially in California is nuts. You can't get into anything for less than half a million. And then you got to put 20% down and all of a sudden, well, I could blow my, <laughs> got to write a hundred thousand dollar check just to buy one property. So let, let's kind of go through you, your, maybe your criteria first and then kind of the, um, you know, how you're doing the financing and stuff. So what are you, what are you looking for in these, in these properties? I want a house that I, as a white female who only speaks English and German, can go in at any time and feel safe because I self-manage all of these homes. Um, we live in most of these homes first. So that's kind of what we look for. We have seven building blocks. We tend to buy in the second best school district, the, the number one or number two in that district's elementary schools. We tend to go number two because number one is usually that much more expensive, but number two, everybody likes two. So we're buying houses that we're living in. And, and that's the other thing is like, we are not traditional investors. Traditional investors want one to 2%. They want large cash flow. What do you mean by one, one to 2%? So if I had a $200,000 house, I want at least two to $4,000 in rent. Of each month, each year? Each month. So like the idea is that you buy a $50,000 house, you rent it out for $1,000 a month. You buy, you know, a $25,000 house and you rent it out for $1,300 a month. Where, where are you finding $50,000 houses? Midwest. <laughs> really? Yeah, check out Cashflow Diaries. Um, he he does a really cool play. Um, he's kind of the what I would call like a typical investor. All right, we can we can look him up. I'll put him in the show notes. Yeah, I mean he. If you look into my um, cash flow passive in, my income report, it links to his because he's kind of the opposite of what I do. So he's a he's just another great cash flow to look at. But he buys like lower income, hires a property management, they do it all for him, and he has four houses, soon to be five, that make eighteen hundred dollars. So we make the same amount of money, and he has five houses, and I have seven houses. Okay. So just a little different idea. So you're collecting less as a percentage, less rent 
as a percentage of sticker price? Yes. So we make about 0.7%. We look on cash on cash, which is where you come down to is how do you buy these houses without putting large down payments on? Yes. And that's where we come into play. That's what our specialty is. I, of all of our houses, including the houses that we fix out, I believe we've put about $155,000 down in all seven of our houses. So as you can see, we're not putting 20 to 25% down. We put as little in them as possible. The final goal is that our tenants is paying them off, which is why appreciation comes into play. So we bought two houses with 0% down VA loans. For those that aren't military, USDA loans are also possible. Then you can do a 3.5% loan with FHA, which is also a good loan. And then finally, after you've exceeded these like first-time buyer-type loans, you can do 5% conventional every time you live in a house. If you're willing, which is what we want to do at the next place, we're going to buy a fourplex. So that means we have three neighbors, but that means that our three neighbors are paying off a larger loan. So the idea is that if you, in America, if you live in a house, there's a lot of really good deals out there. So we've done very well living in our houses and then turning them into investments once we leave. Okay, because none of these fin- or a lot of these financing options uh, aren't available for investor financing. They say, hey, you got to no. be owner-occupied, right? Right. So we owner-occupy as much as possible. And being transient has done a really good <laughs> job allowing us to maximize that. Right. We were going to occupy it, but we may only occupy it for three or four months before we have to move again. Well, a year. So the rule is a year. You're supposed to live in a house for 12 months. And then after that, you need to show a good reason. Oh, okay. And getting a transfer for your job is a good reason sure, sure. under the law. So that's kind of what's really cool about turning into military. But let's talk about the normal person because we're not normal and I'm totally agree. (laughs) And you're going to own that. Is is the 5% down? Anybody can do this. 5% down conventional? Anybody can do this. So let's talk about the average person. You leave college at 22, you enter a new area, right? Mm -hmm. So you live there for a year, you find out you really like it. So now you go buy a house. Well, if you were following my model, you buy a house that you know you can instantly rent out for more than your mortgage. And right now that exists in most areas. Before we bought our first house, we actually rented and had roommates. I have a lot of friends that are military guys and they have roommates now once they buy. So then they're friends pay off their house expenses every month because they rent out two rooms at $1,000. So they're paying like $500 and they put that extra money into a savings account. That's what the average person can do. 22, no problem renting with a bunch of buddies. Heck, you're probably doing it for anyone else. So why don't you leverage your awesome job and its ability to let you buy this house because you could do a 3.5% down or a 5% down in some... um, Different credit unions even have 0%. That's what you do as a first-time buyer. Now, three to five years later, now you're 27 to 25. You meet your wife. You don't want to have roommates. You have a better area you want to live. You buy another house. Well, a lot of people would tell you to sell your first house. You have a lot of equity in it. It's made money. Well, let's say you don't. Let's say you keep it. Well, now you move into this new house, you put 5% down, but you've had the savings account that you've been saving. So putting a $300,000 house, putting 5% down, $15,000, not a big deal. So now you use that current $500 because you rented out that other house that you had. So now you make $500 more when there's no issues. 
Well, now that goes on top of your payment, so you're probably paying less. And so, you know, a couple of years later, you and your wife want to upgrade because you now have two kids and you kept it. And now you have two houses. Mm -hmm. So while you're certainly not me with the goal of owning an empire, (laughs) you can slowly over time accumulate these houses. And before you know it, you could probably get five to $1,500 extra a month. So that's kind of what I do with real estate and how what the average person can get into it without a huge burden. Yeah, I I used to own. I mean, I've been been helped and burned by by the real estate boom and bust. Um, so I guess I could speak for both sides of it. But one of my uh, side hustle failures I would would consider was selling my property in Atlanta, a little condo on the north side of Atlanta. And you know, when I moved back to California or moved back to the West Coast, it was like ah, you know, I just I would just want to be done with it. But you know, looking back. You know, probably that was a nice building. Like it probably could have, you know, cash flow four or five hundred bucks a month, and it was relatively new, so not a ton of maintenance problems with it. So um, I don't know. I like I'm looking back now, of course, and especially talking to you, it's like, man, I should have done that. But uh, what's what's done? What's done is done. Now, are you, you know you're comfortable buying out of state, or you want to say like I want to be there physically in person first, because like you know where we live. You know, the idea of renting something for positive cash flow is not existent. So we really look around. Virginia Beach, it didn't make sense because when you looked at how much money you were putting in, which was our first duty station location. Mm -hmm. So when we went to where my husband graduated and my sister-in-law's graduation of Charleston and met with friends and walked around their neighborhood, we found this awesome, cute little neighborhood that was depressed during the bust. It was a planned community and um, Boeing and Amazon and all of those didn't come in yet. They were just starting to come in five years later and investors were going bust. So we bought some short sales and we did that and that's where we bought um long distance so we purely my husband really didn't know the area we we had one friend out there that kind of helped us and we figured it out um then out here in california i mean we live here but again not every type of house is going to make sense i mean we're certainly not living in what i would call my dream houses but you know three bed two baths 1600 square feet little houses seem to work so we look We just have learned to kind of analyze the area and be like, okay, this will make a good rental. Here are the type of houses. So it's like the smallest house in the nicest neighborhoods will usually just barely scrape by for cash flow. And we're only looking for two to $400 since we put as little down as possible. Okay. Did you know that roughly half of Side Hustle Nation hasn't started their side hustle yet? If that's you, I get it. Starting and building a business is tough. It takes more than just an idea. There are tons of moving parts, and it's a bit like trying to assemble your airplane in the middle of takeoff. Thankfully, our sponsor, Taylor Brands, is helping Side Hustle Show listeners make that leap and make it all a lot easier. Their comprehensive platform guides you through every step, making sure you have everything you need all in one place. Think of it like your behind-the-scenes partner for things like LLC formation, licenses and permits, getting an EIN, setting up your business bank account, bookkeeping and invoicing, insurance, logos, trademark protection, and a lot more. Taylor Brands helps you handle it all seamlessly. And to get you started, Side Hustle Show listeners get 35% off Taylor Brands LLC formation plans when you use our link. That's taylorbrands.com slash side hustle. Taylor Brands, like a tailor for your clothes, T-A-I-L-O-R-B-R-A. A-N-D-S dot com slash side hustle. Start your business journey today with the help of Taylor Brands. 
When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over three and a half million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors. And what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets. And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now, the skeptic in me says you're taking on a lot of risk for 300, 400 bucks a month, especially now if you're on the other side of the country from some of these, like you're managing these remotely or do you hire like, you know, uh, local property management? You're talking to the property manager. I self-manage all of our houses. That's kind of been our key to success. Because that can kill your margin, right? Like that's eight to 10% right off the top. So I ran, I have a an article coming out soon that basically shows that my margin would be dead if I didn't self-manage. Okay. Self-manage. So awesome. with this property, you have to. But again, the idea is this is like your little side income. You know, I got, I'll be honest, I didn't come up with this idea on my own. My mom did it. You know, they had the little house for years and years and years growing up that we always just kind of managed. And it had its moments. Trust me, even I've had my moments with mine. But at the end of the day, it was that extra $500 was kind of worth it. And remember, you're buying in appreciating areas. Like you said, you know, your house is barely breaking even now. But the people who bought 15 years ago, are they still barely breaking even? Most areas, not if you stay in it long enough. And Mm -hmm. so that's kind of where we are. It's like these areas are appreciating higher than my rent and all of that. So over time, they're building up appreciation and they're building up principal pay down and and they're kind of equaling it up. So yes, some of our houses started at one to two hundred, but now they're at four to five hundred dollars. And over time, you know, you pick up two or three during the course of your lifetime of just owning houses, that that's fifteen hundred dollars. Yeah. And then you sell one and you 1031 into another. And you know, the the good thing for us is it has a lot of risk. And I am the first one to tell you that we're $1.1 million in debt. And I'm trying (laughs) to get in a whole lot more debt. But what I like about the risk is I don't have to put as much money down. So like just by managing my side hustle, by answering phone calls at 10 o'clock at night while answering, you know, my batteries out, calling my handyman and then having a great lease that's like if anything less than $100 is on you. So if you call me, I will instantly call the handyman out. But if it's because of a battery or whatever, it's on them. So there's no discussion of whose fault is. They pay the first $100 of every repair. And suddenly those repairs diminished because no one wants to pay a hundred dollars. They'll double check it. We have a break lease clause. So we say that if you decide that something comes up and you want to move, you're fine, but you owe us two months rent, which in a lot of time is 28 to $3,200 and two months notice. And I can fill our properties in two months. Usually I've never had an issue. Knock on wood. So a lot of it is just being willing to manage and don't get me wrong. I get tantrums all the time from my tenants, but I tell them no. Just like I do when I'm 
watching my friend's two-year-old. And you just have to set expectations. It's a business. You're making money. You're doing this because if you weren't making money, it wouldn't be worth it. So of the $1.1 million, we only have 158000 of our own dollars approximately, yeah. which then allows us of the $1,800 that we make from it, it's pretty awesome. So we're still able to fully fund our retirement accounts and still put money in oh shoot accounts, but it's grow. it allows us to grow more baskets. So I will tell you, I hate stress and I and risk is scary. But in the real estate market, if you buy the right houses, if you go in with the right attitude and you understand it will have ulcer-inducing moments, <laughs> it's not that bad. But anything does. What's the, what's the worst thing that's happened to you so far? The worst thing? What, what's the worst tenant horror story so far? See, I can tell you my horror stories and then you'll look at them and you'll tell me that they're not that bad. But partly why they're not that bad is because I am the mean old landlord who doesn't put up with crap anymore. <laughs> so like my most recent that I knew better is I let a I had some newly young kids move into my house. Um, I thought they were a young couple. Come to find out they weren't married. They were married, just not to each other. Oh, great. Six weeks after they moved into my house, they decided they no longer wanted to live there. So I spent the next two months holding their feet to the fire and making them not be able to move out to just break my lease. Finally, they followed the lease, paid the $2,800, and are currently moving out. Yeah, it's like, hey, guys, you signed this contract. Right. Yeah, that doesn't sound so bad. Like, I, my, my family tells stories of like, oh, you know, we had this apartment building and people would change their motorcycle oil in the living room with no pan. And it's just like, oh, gross. Or so, oh, somebody like who drove their car through the garage door, like not the garage door out, but the garage door like into the kitchen. And the insurance company said, well, there was a vehicle involved. So that's an insurance. That's a car insurance claim, not a homeowner's insurance claim. And of course, the guy, the tenant doesn't have car insurance. So you're like, oh, my God, now what? Well, and that's the key. We rent out to young professionals. Like in this case, they tried really hard to get out of it. But at the end of the day, they were military and they would have lost their job. We had another one that were federal employees. They literally painted the entire house, but didn't paint two feet from like the first two feet by the trim. And they didn't paint the two feet by the ceiling. So it would have been thousands of dollars of paint to hire a new painter to come out because you can't just paint half the house. <laughs> but when you go when like when I went through on the tenant inspection and I called them on it ever like I had a two page 22 item you better fix this I walk through and they got a perfect scary deposit back wow. because I don't put up with it like that's unacceptable like I hold your feet to the fire. So you asked me what the worst is. I have all of those stories, but I called them on it. Like I've had multiple tenants call me that they're getting transferred. And I'm like, okay, I need to copy of your orders. I need to know where you're going. Come to find out they're moving four spaces down in the same command and they're buying a house. Hey guys, that's what your break lease clause is for. Yeah. So for me, it's more about calling them on their BS and being willing to put up with the crying and saying that's sorry, welcome, that's what your lease is. Mm -hmm. Do you set up a, a separate entity for each property? No, you have to be careful. So the way we buy our properties, we try to maximize conventional 5% or conventional loans. Yes. And by doing 
stuff, you cannot have it in a corporate name and has to be under your name. So if you move it to an LLC and try to move it out of its corporate name, you have just impacted your mortgage and your mortgage can recall it. Mm. So right now we leave everything in our name because of the type of mortgages. When they start to be paid down and have more equity in them, we might try to refinance them. But with our three to 5% interest rates, it's just worth keeping it and having a huge umbrella. Okay. Okay. So then so that that's the next question is you have the big insurance policy. Yeah, about two mil. Per property? No, total. Total, total. Okay. What's how much does that cost? I assume that's all baked into your it's cash like flow. Two hundred dollars. It's part of my homeowner's insurance. Okay. Honestly, you should have an umbrella policy no matter what you do. Okay. For these out of state properties when you do have turnover, like how are you dealing with just the basics of like showing the property to prospective applicants and stuff like that? My tenants show them. My tenants will show the property to the next set of property. And then I try to fly out because I believe you should walk through all of your property at least once a year. Okay, okay. I almost lost $4,000 because everyone told me that the carpets were awful when they really weren't. People just wanted new carpets. Mm. So after going out and having a third party, I finally flew out and they were fine. And if not, I have a friend do the walkthrough. There's, you know, negative. No one does as good of a job on the walkthrough as you do. And your walkthrough is your key to figuring out what's wear and tear and what's not. Because a lot of stuff is not wear and tear. Dogs chewing up your molding is not wear and tear. Leaving sticky stuff from where you put up like stars in a kid's room on the entire wall because you didn't want to remove the adhesive is not wear and tear. So that just comes down to you as the landlord being willing to manage it. Uh, Earlier, you mentioned uh, you're targeting a cash on cash return. Is there a specific number that you're looking for when you're evaluating different properties? We tried for at least 14%. Two years ago, we were getting 20 to 25 without an issue. Right now, we have issues with 12% when we buy for peer investment. So like 20% down to 25% down. But when we buy with 5% down as a personal, we can hit 20%, no issues. Okay. What do you think has changed? Just like you're no longer able to get the most attractive loan terms because they're, you're, you're, the bank knows you're buying it as an investment? No, the economy has bounced back. So your the purchase price has right. increased. Okay. Yes. So what we used to be paying one sixty for, we're paying two hundred for. Okay. But it's also knowing your area. Where we live, houses are still selling for two thirty when they got in the height of the boon at four hundred thousand. So it's also knowing your area and when people want to run away because it's like an awful market, for me, that's when it's on sale and that's when you buy it. So it's looking at like short sales and foreclosures and doing some of these harder house buys are attractive because they they have a better discount. Okay, that, that's kind of what I was going to ask next is like everyone says, hey, once it hits the MLS, it's, you know, market forces take effect and you're not going to get a super good deal on it. So are you doing like the proactive like we buy houses like signs on the side of the road and stuff like that or trying to source properties? No, I don't have time. I work full-time. I buy everything off the MLS. So the eighth property is we're buying from a friend of ours who is upgrading. Um, So she wanted an investor to buy her house because she wanted to be able to live in it for four months. And she knew I was interested in her house, so Mm -hmm. I bought it from her. But everything else has been right off the MLS. We buy ugly. 
So we'll walk in and I'll be like, this is disgusting, but I'll take it. Whereas everybody else won't. So the thing is, I am competing with first time home buyers, but I don't want what they do. Like fresh carpet, fresh paint. I'm not interested. Like dog peed all over my carpet. I have to put new carpet in. I want that house because I can get it for $20,000 under its value because it's disgusting and carpet's like four grand. Yeah. The cosmetic stuff is, is relatively cheap to, uh, to add in there. Okay. Right. So the thing you want to be careful of is people go after the pretty pigs, the lipstick pigs, and we don't. We go after the ugly, great exterior. So like we bought our first foreclosure and it had a brand new roof on it, brand new siding on it. Everything was new except the AC system. But the inside was trashed. (laughs) I mean, they let their kids draw all over some of the doors. They're $35 doors, by the way. They let them paint the cabinets in the kitchen. $100 to repaint. Uh, They, you know, redid some of the floorings. It cost us $1,800 in carpet. So what we got at $50,000 under value cost us less than $12,000 to bring it fully up value. And we over-improved it with, like, a um, dual-headed shower. And that was our first house. So again, it's just looking at what you're buying and what you're looking for. Okay, so this stuff looks <laughs> it looks worse than it is uh, because right. you know I, w- I would have the same reaction. I'd walk in and be like, "Oh my god, this place is a dump!" Like, you know, look what what happened here? Who lived here? And okay, okay, and then realize kind of trying to do the math in your head, like, "Look, okay, this is not that big of a deal to fix, or it's not going to be that expensive to fix as long as like structurally it's fine." Right. So the, the uglier the house is, the bigger the smile on my face okay. gets because th- that's cheap money, right? But that's what first-time home buyers walk away with. Like when I try to get our friends to buy smart houses, I mean, there's houses where I'm like, you're paying for every improvement this like home buyer, buyer paid for over the time and you're never going to get anything back from a renter. A renter doesn't care that it has a ceiling fans. They aren't paying more money for it. They don't care that it has tile showers. I mean, you just, so we pay for stuff that adds rental value. We don't pay for the stuff that doesn't. If you travel a lot for work or for vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. What's an example of something that adds rental value? A fourth bedroom adds rental value. Um, Ceiling fan does not. (laughs) Ceiling fan does not. A friend of ours bought this totally beautifully manicured backyard. Um, It was gorgeous. It had probably $25,000 to $40,000 in landscaping, pool, outdoor bar, you name it. Amazing. It was in the older part of town. It was further from base in the new, where the new housing was going up. 
it was in a depreciating neighborhood. She's going to get less money for rent for her house than my not upgraded, not pretty, but in the right location, right by base, up and coming area. So that's where you have to look at it. And I paid $15,000 less. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I understand where you're going with that. Um, it's all, it all comes down to that, uh, that location. I really like the tip about going to the number two neighborhood. Like the, uh, that's what kind of where the efficiency curve hits in terms of uh, you know, price and value. So Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me. This was a really interesting conversation. Once again, getting me excited about you know, real estate empire building and really excited to see where you go with this. So you can follow along with Elizabeth's adventures at reluctantlandlord.net. And uh, she does monthly reports on uh, you know, what these properties are earning. Very fascinating stuff in there. And uh, we'll wrap it up with your number one tip for Side Hustle Nation. Be the best at what your side hustle is and figure out what that sub niche. So like my sub niche is self-management. And so that's what you can find on Reluctant Landlord. Like I'm starting a new e-course on how to teach you how to self-manage. That's what I'm known for. So figure out not only what your side hustle is, but get to be the expert in the sub niche of that area that you are the best at. And then that is what you will excel at. Awesome. Very, very cool. Elizabeth, thanks so much. We'll, we'll catch up with you soon. Thank you. Be the best at what your side hustle is. That's eerily similar to a quote I gave in a speech at my high school graduation. Whatever you are, be a good one. And that line is actually attributed to Abraham Lincoln, but like a lot of Lincoln quotes that circulate on the interwebs, uh, including his good things come to people who hustle, quote, it's, it's pretty tough to find the primary source material on that stuff. I don't know if he said any of the stuff that's been attributed to him. But in, in any case, I do really like the the call to do your best work no matter what that work is. I think that's something that we can all apply and, uh, and try and make a habit of. When it comes to real estate, this is one of the oldest side hustles in the book, right? On the surface, it's very simple. It's very elegant. It's, hey, buy a property on leverage, let somebody else pay it off, maybe collect a little cash flow uh, over the years, but after some time, you're sitting on this nice bank of equity to pad your retirement, and in Elizabeth's case, pad your early retirement. Now, I'm a little gun-shy when it comes to real estate because I made some poor and very expensive decisions during the boom and bust and subsequent reboom uh, here in California, which is... Uh, One reason Elizabeth's investor mindset really spoke to me, I think evaluating property decisions through that lens um, can help reduce your risk big time. And I I wish I had talked to her 10 years ago and and things maybe would have turned out differently. But if you're thinking of getting into the game, I definitely encourage you to check out some of Elizabeth's stuff at reluctantlandlord.net. As as you can tell, it's not the hypey, get-rich-quick no, no money down, uh, real estate uh, pitches that you see a lot of. It's just, uh, you know, a couple real people really making this happen uh, one house at a time. So I'm really grateful for her to come on and, and share a little bit of her story and a little bit of her strategy behind it. Um, also, if you head over to sidehustlenation.com slash houses, you can download the free PDF highlight reel from this episode, or you can grab it through uh, the link in the episode description of your podcast player app. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, let's go out there, make something happen, and I'll catch you in the next edition of The Side Hustle Show. Hustle on. Thanks for listening to The Side Hustle Show at www.sidehustlenation.com. 